Hello again, this is Derek Duncan from Golf Digest, and this is the Feed the Ball podcast. My guest for episode 74 is golf course architect David Kahn. This is kind of a special episode of Feed the Ball because, in addition to golf design, I'm going to spend some time speaking with David Kahn about his family's unimaginably tragic story. Based out of Scottsdale, Kahn is one half of Jackson Kahn Design, along with partner Tim Jackson, who Jim Urbina and I spoke to in the Feed the Ball Salon, Volume 12. Both men worked for Tom Fazio until 2009, when they formed their own firm, and the work they've done since can only be described as dazzling, creative, and profound. Khan and I do dig deep into that world of architecture, golf sites, and creativity, but we also discuss the heartbreaking situation of his and wife Karen's two soon-to-be 11-year-old twin daughters, Amelia and Mackenzie. Until the age of seven, they were each healthy, exuberant little girls full of life and laughter. Then, four years ago, they were both diagnosed with juvenile Batten disease, a fatal neurological disorder that destroys the body's nervous system. Not long after that, the girls began to lose their vision and are now completely blind. They've also begun to slip into states of extreme dementia and are ravished by chronic pain, sleeplessness, and anxiety. Their ability to walk and even talk is rapidly diminishing, and at some point in the near future, they will lose nearly all motor function and need around-the-clock support. As they watch their two babies slip away from them, often in states of extreme agitation and misery, there's almost nothing David and Karen can do other than to continue to offer what care they can and to simply try to endure. There is something all of us can do for them. The cons have created the Four Batten Foundation, that's F-O-R-E-B-A-T-T-E-N, to raise money and awareness for research into the causes of Batten disease, which are not currently understood. The website to visit is fourbatten.org, F-O-R-E-B-A-T-T-E-N.org. With increased financial support, there is hope that treatments and ultimately cures can be developed. It's likely too late to save Amelia and Mackenzie, but with more research, there's hope for families in the future. The primary vehicle for fundraising is the fourth annual Four Batten online silent auction, running from March 15th through March 29th. If you're listening to this podcast in the future, there will in all likelihood be another auction next March. Available for bidding are rounds at some of the game's most prestigious private courses, including Friars Head, Oakmont, Ballyneal, and Maidstone, as well as unique experiences like trailing Bill Coor or Gil Hance on construction site for a day. You must check out the over 200 courses on offer. To do that, or to donate money or an auction item, again, go to fourbatten.org. You can also read more about the cons, the Forbatten Foundation, and the auction in my recent story on GolfDigest.com. There's a link to the story in the show notes. In spite of the pain and suffering he's endured with his family, David's professional career proceeds with great potential and possibility. He and Jackson have a number of projects in the pipeline, including a comprehensive upcoming remodel of Eugene Country Club. He and I discuss that, his views on history and the importance of historical restoration, working with Tom Fazio, Jackson Kahn's ability to manufacture landscapes that look indiscernible from nature, and their magnum opus thus far, Scottsdale National. Scottsdale National is a tour de force of design, with some of the most ambitious and intriguing architecture you'll find in a modern course. It's a shame more people can't see it. Jackson Kahn's flame would be burning even hotter if they could. 
Thank you on behalf of me and the Khan family for listening to this conversation and for your help in raising awareness for terrible rare diseases like juvenile Baden. Please give your thoughts and your ears now to David Kahn. ask you so i've been thinking about this quite a bit how do you keep your game so sharp given everything that's going on in your life i mean you must be the most naturally gifted player or you're able to sneak in a lot more golf than we think well let's let's uh let's let's dial that back a bit i appreciate it but um i'm not the most uh, naturally talented golfer in the world but i do feel like it's kind of like it just it comes natural to me it's kind of like riding a bike I do not practice. And, um, in my own mind, I don't feel like my game's sharp at all. Um, but I've just, I've been playing golf since I was 18 months old and it just came to me. I wasn't really taught it. I just did it. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be able to continue to do so. Um, so just like, you know, everyone that kind of doesn't play or practice, uh, habitually, you know, your short game, disappears. So that's, that's what I struggle with right now. But in terms of ball striking and the, and the full golf swings, I, it really is like riding a bike to me and I, and I can't explain it. It just, it's just something, one of the few things I can do well. Um, I wish obviously I could do it, uh, much more proficiently, but you know, it's, it's a very humbling and, and difficult game. So it is. And you played at Auburn, correct? I played my freshman year. Uh, technically, I, I redshirted my freshman year, um, but I, I practiced and played with the team every every day, and I just didn't travel and play in any events. But I was on the team proper uh, my freshman year and then transferred over to landscape architecture. And uh, the day I did that, I went into my coach's office, and I told him, just being uh, transparent, I said, hey, coach, I transferred into landscape architecture today. And he looked at me without skipping a beat and said, that's great. It's school or golf. Choose now. Wow. And, you know, at 18 years old, I didn't really understand that uh, that decision that I was <laughs> faced with. Um, but, you know, uh, I kind of felt it in my gut. So I immediately said, well, I can play golf the rest of my life. So I guess I'll choose school. And I really didn't even get a second thought. And and looking back, I don't know how I was that confident because I had no idea. But once I got into the architecture program, I quickly realized that he was spot on. You know, he may have said it a little blunt and and a little harsh for an 18 year old, but it, it kind of was what I needed to hear. Um, you know, we were working 18, 20 hours a day, pulling all nighters, three, four, five days a week. I didn't have any time for golf. I didn't have any time for anything else other than architecture school. So. So he must have had a decent understanding of what that entailed versus, you know, the other guys on the golf team yeah, that were did. majoring in psychology or sociology or something. Right. He did. I don't know how. I never asked. I literally, I said, I, I choose school. And, and that was kind of the last words I spoke to him. So um, he, he either had experience with with a past uh, player getting into that same program or, or was just smart enough to know that the time constraints and demands on on that uh, curriculum, it just is not feasible. So 
Yeah. And I was very naive to that. I understand. I, when I, I had started, no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I was in the same kind of, I wasn't, I didn't have to decide between uh, landscape design, the environmental design school at my college that I went to or, or being on the golf team. But those, those studio hours I, I know can be incredibly taxing. And, and I remember pulling all nighters and, and it's expensive too. We had to buy all yeah. of our own supplies and the, the vellum yeah. and the pencils and whatever materials you're it's, building models with. Yeah. It's grueling. I mean, the first year, the first class, um, we were on quarters at Auburn. So the first quarter in architecture school, they put architecture students and landscape architecture students together. And it is eight hours it's an eight hour class, one class for eight hours, five days a week. That's all you have for school. And that's, that's just the, the teaching component of the program. And then you have all your work on top of that. So eight hours of schooling in one class. And then, you know, I try not to exaggerate this, but another eight to 10 hours during the day where you have to do the work that is required when you start the next day. So, um, and, and it's really like a boot camp type scenario where, Every other day, every week, you just see this group of, let's say, 40 people that were in your class and they just drop like flies. They're like, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. This isn't for me. And I, I don't quite understand the psychology behind why. It's not like we're in a very grueling uh, industry. You know, I, I, I don't know why they're trying to uh, why they were so harsh. And this is across, this is not Auburn. I mean, speaking to people that have this degree from around the country, it's, it's, it's very similar. And I just, for the life of me, I don't understand why it's so demanding in school. Um, you know, it's not a life or death profession. No, it's almost like architecture professors are like drill sergeants and they, they just want to, they, they, maybe yeah. they do a better job than other professors of other curriculums in preparing you. Cause I, I had the same thing after you put in all that time and then you go to present whatever your project is in front of the panel and, and uh, architecture professors and instructors, and then they just rip the hell out of you. Yeah, and it's, it's just like the break you down. This guy that I took a class from, the main uh, professor, he just said, "I'm preparing you to spend a lifetime of uh, redesigning strip mall facades. If, you, if that sounds like something you want to <laughs> do the rest of your life, then you're in the right place." You know, of course, everybody has ideas of like, you know, building uh, skyscrapers and private homes. And he's just, he was just, maybe that was his life. That's the truth. And he just wanted to take it out on us. But uh, it certainly made me drop like a Yeah, odds are he's he's right, though. I mean, there's just only so many, um, you know, A-plus design jobs out there. So And that goes for golf, uh, too, right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really almost any industry that's true, right? There's, there's only a, a certain percentage of, of jobs and, and projects and people you deal with that are the cream of the crop. Um, but yeah, you know, what it, what it has done, I think is helped. It helped prepare me for, um, f- failure is not the right word, but heavy, heavy criticism, Right, because they did make it their mission to to bring tears to the presenter during uh, juries. That's what we called them when you present. I mean, they never patted you on the back ever. And uh, you know, as a kid, it's it's hard. But you know, I think I think I came out of it 
better for it. It just didn't recognize it at the time. That's for sure. At the time where you like, I, I made the wrong decision. I should have stayed on the golf team. Yeah. You know, <laughs> studied well, history. I guess I didn't, I didn't fully feel that way. Cause I didn't quit. Um, yeah, you know, it, some people that that is a good tactic to motivate you and, and others just drives you away. And I guess you could say that creates a survival of the fittest um, outcome. But, you know, either way, um, three of my professors were Harvard, PhD, and and they I think they really just enjoyed uh, making our lives miserable. I think they just had fun with it. Right. <laughs> so, but, you know, I, I, I kind of have them to thank for who I am today. So no complaints at all. It's just, it was not a, everyone gets a ribbon type school. And, and, uh, I think that's a good thing. It's life, isn't it? Yep. That is life. You're right. Well, speaking of life, I imagine that this time of year is, 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 is this time of year, I'll just ask you, um, with the, the four-baton auction coming up beginning on March 15th, is this a difficult time of year for you? Does it add an extra perspective on what you and your wife and your family are going through? Yeah, um, it's 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 the time of year. It's We dread it, um, to be honest. Um, it's kind of a necessary evil that we have to go through to, to fight. Um, for our daughters and, and for everyone else that's suffering with this disease. Um, but we definitely don't look forward to it. Uh, we look forward to the end of it and we look forward to the success of it. Uh, but it is very emotionally difficult. Um, we've learned since the first year to delegate more, to take more of the daily duties off of our plates. Cause that was really dragging us down, really dragging us down. And, and so that has helped, um, kind of our, our learning curve has been quick. I feel over the, the first three episodes of, of this event. And, and now it's, um, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's on cruise control by any means, but it's, it's off of our, uh, to-do list, which is great. Um, we're still involved. Obviously we still puppeteer things and, and say yes or no and, and, and speak up when needed. But, you know, we just, our first priority is taking care of the girls and, and that doesn't stop. And, and any activity or uh, event that pulls us away from our daughters is, is tough. And sometimes we have to, and sometimes we can say, you know what, I just got to, we just got to stay at home and, and hunker down. So, um, like I said, it's, it's, I'm not complaining that, that we have to go through this every year and, and we have to go through it every day. Um, it's, it's the cards we've been dealt and we're, we're not quitters. Um, we think about it a lot, but we know deep down we're not yeah. Yeah. those types of people. So we just, we have to fight and, and we have to survive. So we're, we're trying to figure out how to best do that. And I think we're going to be trying to, figure that out for the rest of our lives. Honestly. Um, it's a, it's a roller coaster, uh, situation and, and really we take it and everyone, you know, the old adage is just take it one day at a time. But I mean, we, we take it one minute at a time and, and, you know, very, um, you know, it's very similar to the game of golf and, and the, the cliche of one shot at a time. I mean, that's really how we live our life. Um, 
you know, we can't look too far forward, even though we know what's coming. Um, if you spend too much time dwelling on the inevitable future, you kind of just freeze in fear and sadness. So, uh, we, it's, it's virtually impossible to block that out. It's, it's always in the back or middle of your brain and sometimes in the front of your brain, but, um, we just, we try to squash it down as much as we can and just focus on the now. You said something to me recently that has stuck with me. And when the, when McKinsey and Amelia received their diagnoses about four years ago, you said you and Karen thought you'd get, you know, two, three, four good years before, you know, the eventual inevitable decline set in. And, and you said, we didn't even get that. It started to happen so quickly. And you, and then you said the last 18 months have been a particularly rapid a spread of the disease. Yeah, it has. It has. I mean, there's no crystal ball and there's no guidelines for exactly how it's going to go when you get this disease. Um, there are overarching similarities between uh, kids uh, that get specifically juvenile batten disease. Um, you know, there are averages that you can try to base some sort of timeline off of, but every kid's different. And, and even though our daughters are twins, I mean, they're fraternal twins. Um, they are expressing the disease at a different trajectory as well. So we see it in our own household. And, you know, and that's, that's also a little scary too, to, to witness one a little further than the other. And, um, you know, and so when, when we first started learning about juvenile batten disease, which we were uh, blissfully unaware of prior to their diagnosis, um, you know, all the history told us that, you know, kids typically get diagnosed or start uh, presenting symptoms at five or six or seven. Uh, previously they progress and hit milestones on par up until that point. So typically progressing reading, writing, just everything, you know, normal kid, you wouldn't think otherwise. Um, and then vision loss is typically the first symptom, which happened to both of them. And, and then it's kind of a, a, a mixture of, of sequencing from there with the rest of the symptoms between uh, dementia and, and seizures and uh, behavior issues, lack of sleep, um, loss of motor function, loss of, you know, bowel control, and eventually just everything kind of shuts down from the inside out. And so, you know, with the first symptoms, uh, again, on paper with what we're researching and reading when we first were diagnosed, when the girls were first diagnosed, it was okay. Somewhere between five and seven, they'll start maybe losing vision, not go completely blind. Um, because a lot of our research showed us that there were still 13, 14, 15 year olds out there with the same disease that still had some degree of functional vision. So like, okay, you know, we got, we might have six, seven, eight years of some sort of vision, even if it's shadows and light. Um, and then, you know, there were stories of kids that, you know, really didn't deal with seizures until teenagers. And, and so, you know, the more we read, the more like, okay, it looks like somewhere between 12 and 14 is really when this shit's going to hit the fan. And, and that's not great, but when they're seven, like, okay, we got, we got some years to enjoy to go, you know, make some trips and make some memories and check some bucket list item things off. And it just, 
you know, we, it just didn't happen. <laughs> we, we started with Mackenzie. Um, she was infatuated still is with penguins and zebras. And so while she still had vision left, um, we, we did a make a wish to go to, uh, the zoo in San Diego zoo and the, uh, sea world in San Diego. And it was just an amazing experience with all the trainer, the animal trainers and, um, Mackenzie got to feed an emperor penguin and, you know, go into the exhibit and, and pet the penguins. And, uh, we met a zebra and pet the zebra and fed the zebra. And then they just kept bringing us around to all these other animal exhibits and having us interact with them. It's just, it was incredible. And, you know, the whole time we're doing that, we're like, you know, our brain's going like, we've got at least four or five other things that let's just go do it. You know, let's fly to New Zealand and go see her favorite penguin, which is the little blue fairy. And that's where their natural habitat is. And that would just be awesome. Let's just go do it. And it just, it just went downhill so fast. Um, She lost her vision within a matter of, she went from, Functional vision where, you know, didn't need to hold our hand, yeah, trip every once in a while, but she could get around. Like you would not know she was blind. You would just think she was a little shy and, and slow to move, but completely functional vision. And it went from that to darkness in two months. Oh man. In the summer, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I believe in the summer of 2018. And a year prior or 10 months prior, the same exact thing happened to Amelia, the same stretch the same timing from functional vision to nothing. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's rare, but like of the, of the other kids we know, like a lot of them still have some type of vision, not necessarily functional, but you know, they can see shadows and light and maybe vague objects, but our girls went to blackness like really quick. And, and that was, uh, scary for all of us. Um, definitely expressed itself in a lot of behavioral issues because they were scared and couldn't quite communicate why, um, you know, cause the dementia had already started and, and the memory, uh, uh the word recall, uh, was starting to fade. So, you know, they, they struggled to communicate, what is wrong. And so it just comes out in behavioral outbursts, uh, very much similar to a toddler. They don't have the communication skills to tell you when something's wrong. So they just scream, right? I mean, that's human nature. So, so that's what we're, that's kind of what our days are, are filled with now is a lot of behavioral issues related to the frustration of the symptoms of the disease. And then as well as the dementia, which you know, this is the cruelest disease I could imagine for a parent to go through because your, right. your daughters were so active and alive and healthy. And then you have to witness, you know, if, uh, in other words, if as, as tragic as it is, if you're, if you have an infant and they're born with this disease, then you don't know them as a developed person. Other than yep. that, you know, you nurse them it's, as best you can from, from birth, right. but your daughters were, were active and, and healthy and full of life and exuberant. And then you have to watch their, their decline. And, and not only does it, it take their sight away, which is, would be, you know, so difficult to deal with. It, it eats away at their body and it eats away at their brain and their musculature and their, and their in chronic pain 
Um, and right. and then you just see the, the fading of their of their consciousness and their connection to reality. It's it's horrible. I mean, any one of the symptoms of Batten disease on their own is horrific, and it is just layered upon layered with horrible, <laughs> horrible symptoms. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's a neurological degenerative disease, and so it affects the brain. And as we all know, the brain is the computer of the body, and when that's not working properly, nothing is. Um, and it's it's scary enough, I would imagine, to go blind, and it's scary enough, I would imagine, to lose your mind. And you combine those together, and it's like, what the hell, like. <laughs> what the hell? It, it makes you question, uh, a lot of things and, you know, we're right or wrong, good or bad. We're not religious people. Um, you know, so we don't really have anyone to, to harp at and, and say, why me, why me? But, um, it, it sure makes you Recons question. Have you ever, have you reconsidered yeah, we, that? Well, we have reconsidered. We just have not acted upon it. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up, both of us grew up, um, Catholic and going to church, every week. And I went to a Catholic high school and kind of got the, the, the religion, uh, kind of knocked religion out of me, <laughs> mm -hmm. which probably does to a lot of people that go to a Catholic school. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not knocking the religion at all. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's right for a lot of people and, and I'm not saying it's wrong for us. It's just something we grew apart from. Um, and we just haven't really gone back that, to that world. Uh, yet. And, and I don't know if we will. I'm, I'm not counting it out, but I'm not seeking it out either. Um, you know, one of the, one of the best things that um, anyone has provided for us since diagnosis was Karen's sister, uh, my wife's sister, less than a week into the diagnosis, she signed us up for grief counseling, just on her own, went out, found a grief counselor local here and got us an appointment. And, you know, at this point in our lives, we were still struggling to get out of bed. Didn't want to talk about anything. Didn't want to talk to anyone, just wanted to hide. And, and, and we were able to get out from under the covers and, and go see a therapist. And to this day, we still routinely see her It's a different person now, but, um, it has helped tremendously to to give us some perspective, allow us to feel the pain, allow us to embrace the pain, um, and really just help us with coping mechanisms and and being okay with not being okay. <laughs> really, I'm not a religious person either, so I'm not. I wouldn't tend to to tilt this way, but you must ask yourself and your wife, you know. Are, are we being tested in some way? How could, how could all of this be happening? Because, and, and to, to reverse and, and look back on the original uh, golf magazine story that Alan Shipnuck wrote, you know, he, he documents and it, and it brings to all of us the, the trials that you went through just to conceive children in the first place. And there right. was a, enough heartbreak and challenge in that. And then it, and then now, you know, you look at where you are now. I mean, it would, it would be an, it's almost like Old Testament style uh, testing is what it makes me think of. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely read it that way. Um, and I'm sure if we were uh, very religious people, we would, um, 
we would have maybe made sense out of it. And I, I don't know. It's, you know, my mind just goes to, it's, it's just, it's random. <laughs> it's just random. Um, you know, maybe we, we definitely ask ourselves, well, maybe, maybe this was why uh, we couldn't naturally get pregnant that Karen's body knew deep down that this isn't going to produce something good. So I'm just going to keep rejecting it. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a legitimate argument there, uh, scientifically, mm -hmm. um, you know, the body is, the body's a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> it kind of knows and senses things, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's just, it, it is what it is. And I hate saying that, but it's the truth. We are in it. It's the hand we've been dealt and we've got to play it as best as we can. Um, you know, kind of understand our probabilities and, and expectations and, and just one minute at a time, you know, we can't go back in time and change anything. So you just got to, got to move forward. What kind of physical toll has it taken on you? Um, I feel a joke with a lot of people and I have no basis other than my experience, but I'm a firm believer that living with someone with dementia is contagious. I have, I feel like I've lost my mind. I have, my memory is completely shot. I am overwhelmed with information and decisions and, and just uh, emotion and sadness and, and there's happiness mixed in there too, but it's, there's just, my brain is completely full and things are just falling out and I don't know what falls out until I try to recall it. And, and I just don't, I can't, I can't. Um, and, and so that's, that's definitely the most impacted physical change that I feel. Um, and, you know, I, th I think everyone to a certain degree in today's world, um, is overwhelmed and, and overcommitted and, and expectations are unrealistic at times with, with, uh, the, the fast paced world we live in and the instant gratification and instant communication and all this. So I don't think that this is part and parcel to the disease. Um, but I think that coupled with having to deal with witnessing the disease and just trying to keep them happy and safe and, as pain-free as possible. I mean, it just all adds up to, to physical and emotional exhaustion from literally from the moment our eyes open in the morning. There's no, there's no reboot period. There's no refresh button. Um, even if we get eight hours of sleep, which is rare, we wake up and we're right, right into it again. There's you know, we, we always say like when my wife and I maybe get a chance to go out to dinner or, or go out and play golf, which isn't too frequent, but you know, we get a little break and we come back and it's like re-entry is a bitch. As soon as, sometimes as soon as you open the garage door, uh, not even inside the house yet, you hear the chaos that's going on in there. And you're like, you just take a deep breath and walk through the threshold and boom, breaks over. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, you know, my wife is, is, uh, probably it, not probably she is taking 
much more of the physical and emotional brunt of it because I get a little reprieve to work, which is kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, work is going so well um, for us and, and it should be a, a happy time in our life. Um, and it is, it is, but it's really hard to, to let that, the full extent of the happiness sink in because the home life and what's going on with our daughters is just still so uh, present in my brain that I just can't, I can't let the happiness creep in too much. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah. I mean, but, so uh, yeah. it, you, by no option, you have to cohabitate in this mental space with your daughters. I mean, you, you don't have a choice. It sounds like, and also like that's in order to just kind of be there for them. You just have to release all expectations of rationality or, or reality as, as you know it. Um, I, 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 can't I mean I can understand that in a way I, I really can't I don't think anybody can but I'm wondering if it, at any level does thinking about golf design or golf holes when you're in that space does that give you any kind of release or are you able to let your mind go there for an escape I am um, when I am you know and and this is uh, we've been working remotely and from the house for 11 years so COVID is had really no impact on us uh, from a work standpoint. In fact, anything that's helped the industry as, as most of your listeners know. And, and so when I'm at home working, it's very difficult. It's difficult to concentrate. Um, it's, it's difficult to disconnect myself from what's going on right outside my door. And I get a few hours of break when they're in school. Um, but as soon as they're home, it's really hard because even just a little peep from them, it, it, it could be an innocent peep. It could just be them maybe even laughing out there. It's not the good or bad. It's just as soon as I hear them, I get immediately sucked into that world. And, and it just pulls me away from whatever activity I was trying to concentrate on from a work standpoint. So in the house, really, really, really difficult to do what I do. I get it done. Sometimes I have to work in the middle of the night um, just to focus without distraction. Um, but then the, the other aspect of our work is in the field. And so when we're in the dirt and I'm away from the house, I don't have nearly the same difficulty focusing and, and embracing um, that world and that role. Um, I feel... I feel fully creative and engaged when I'm out in the dirt. Um, I just don't get that same vibe when I'm at home trying to work. And that's frustrating because, you know, I, I used to. Um, and like I said, I still get it done. We still get it done to the level that, that clients have expected. Um, it just takes a little longer for me to get it done. And sometimes I have to delegate a little bit more, which, which, you know, isn't a bad thing, but I kind of take pride in, in uh, what I bring to the table. So it's, you know, it kind of stings a little bit when I can't do what I know I used to be able to do. Right. Yeah, I know. You mentioned that, that, you know, things are otherwise professionally for you going pretty well with you and your partner, uh, Tim Jackson. Mm -hmm. Um, you've, I'm sure you've got some good leads and, and projects in various stages of development. One of them that uh, we learned about, as the golfing public recently was Eugene Country Club. 
Yes. And this was this was an old Chandler Egan golf course that Robert Trent Jones famously uh, altered. I, I think it was in the 1960s, was it? Maybe 50s. Um, mm-hmm. And he he literally rerouted the golf course in reverse. So where there was a, a tee, there was now a green, and it was a major transformation of that property. Uh, and and you and Tim are now going to, um, I don't know whatever word you want to use, re- renovate, remodel. I don't think restore it quite captures it. But what was it? What was it about Eugene that most was most interesting to you? The 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 environment is just fantastic. Um, you know, we, we can get into the details of the golf. Um, and if honestly, if we thought the golf was um, the golf details were superior, we wouldn't you know be doing a renovation. But the the property is so is so beautiful the trees i mean it's like playing through an arboretum it really is and coming from the desert where you know our trees are essentially oversized weeds um and going up to the pacific northwest and seeing some of those those trees up there they just you know i spent more time taking pictures of the trees than i did the golf course on our first visit and that's not necessarily a knock on the golf course but the trees are what caught my eye and as we all know, a golf course, um, most of the time is only as good as its environment that it's in. Now the golf details can either add to that or, or just kind of be there. I don't think they can take away from a, from property, but they definitely, um, can add to it if, if done right. So, um, you know, our, our goal is to utilize a lot of the you know, really cool ground contours that are out there. And it, it's really um, positioning tees a little bit more appropriately across the board for more enjoyment and more, more options um, and getting the bunkers uh, a little bit better aesthetic and in different, uh, more appropriate locations for modern day golf. And, and like I said, uh, there, there's a lot of repetition currently at Eugene Country Club in terms of the, the golf holes and how they're presented a lot of similarly, similarly hazard, hazarded greens, um, a lot of similarly length golf holes. A lot of the par fours are within, you know, 20 yards of each other, which, uh, you know, is pretty much a club, a club and a half different. So we're trying to get a lot more variety into the golf shots that we're asking people to hit and a lot more uh, options where we can, um, instead of just, you know, Hey, just hit it between the trees and move on from there. So, um, trying to take a, a kind of a one dimensional golf course from a playability standpoint and, and bring a lot more flexibility and variety to it, which is ultimately what makes great, great golf courses. Great. The golf co- the course at Eugene that you would find today, how similar is it to the golf course that Trent Jones left behind? You know, we, we, we know that golf courses age and they change and uh, green mm-hmm. shrink and uh, things can be modified over the years, you know, new tees added, bunkers filled in what what not how much has the golf course changed over the last 50 years or so 60 years it's 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 very similar it's very similar um i would imagine conditioning is is a lot better (laughs) just with maintenance practices um evolving over time um trees are inevitably bigger so they're more ominous and and impressive um some trees have fallen um you know i we, quite honestly, we weren't ever brought in to, to study it as a restoration. So to be frank, I, I don't have an, an intimate uh, historical knowledge of 
of what it was. Um, and that's, you know, some people may knock, knock us for saying that, but it's just, it's, it's the direction of the project that was brought to us. It, it wasn't a restoration. And so we were tasked with trying to find the best golf possible. Um, we had more elaborate plans that didn't make the cut just because of, uh, it was, it was too much change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and one of our sales pitch was, Hey guys, you, you're, you're known in the history of golf for making the most significant change ever to a <laughs> right. golf course. So what we're proposing is, is not even that extreme, but, um, they're like, know, we did, uh, a, we did that once already. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, but, but I, I do think it's very, very much, uh, what Robert Trent Jones intended and, and left behind, uh, the last time he touched the place. Yeah. I wonder, it's just, when you so. describe the holes as a lot of the par fours being of similar length and maybe only a club and a half difference, I, I, I just, I'm curious, and I don't, I don't suggest that you have the answer. You couldn't infiltrate that, you know, 1960s mindset. But I, I wonder why, uh, if there was something about the property and all the holes had to, you know, kind of be that same length, or was it just a mind design mindset that whereas hole length variety or um, just trying to create as much diversity across 18 holes didn't seem to be in the program for that golf course. It seems, you know, and this could be us applying a modern standard or a previous standard to a particular moment in, in time, which I, I, I think we should be aware of when we were doing that. But it would seem like that's sort of a timeless concept is to create a lot of variety amongst 18 holes. You would think so. Yeah. And, and, and this is all speculation because I don't know, um, you know, maybe some T's were added over time to add length to certain holes and just where those T's happened to be added made, made some similarity in distance. Maybe there was more variety back when Robert Trent Jones, you know, opened up his version of it. I don't know. Um, you know, I, 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 part of me kind of feels bad that I don't know, but other part of me, it's like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Let's just get that, you know, variable in it moving forward. Um, and there are probably some architects out there that don't maybe don't care about that, but it, it's something that we do. We feel it brings, you know, uh, added replay value into courses and, and just enhances the experience. And, and yeah, I, I feel like it is kind of a, a staple goal of, of golf course design um, to try to bring every club, uh, you know, into the mix. And, and we try to do that as we can. Obviously it's different from person to person. Um, not everyone hits at the same distance. Not everyone starts from the same tee. So, um, but at least, you know, on the scorecard, we like to have that, that variation. We feel it's very important. Um, and it would be interesting to go back and, and do some digging and see if that had, had devolved over time, uh, since the late sixties. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but right. and not to like belabor, said, it's, it's something not to, that moving forward. Yeah. Sorry. Not, not to yeah. belabor Trent Jones, but you know, he, he's really, I mean, if anything, he had a reputation for trying to create whole length flexibility into his designs by designing Right. 80 yard long tees. So you could just have, you know, yeah. you could set the golf course up for different ways. And, um, I'd be curious to know if there was, if that tee program was ever in effect at Eugene or if they got broken up into pods at some point. No, they still, they, uh, not every hole has runway tees, um, and they still have them. So we're actually breaking them up and our logic mostly comes from, well, two things. One, the, the concept of the runway tee and the flexibility is awesome on paper, but for some reason, the stubbornness of certain memberships 
do not allow the tees to move from where the plate is. And that is a major flaw (laughs) in how memberships run clubs. It's, it's very unfortunate. And, 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 you know, I don't know if USGA is to blame, you know, all the slope and rating, all that hyper-focus on something that really shouldn't matter to the enjoyment of the game. Um, that has a serious impact on it. You know, membership could just be up in arms if the T is, is eight yards in front of the plate. Like, you know, like, come on guys, go play golf. So, so that has a, that has a, a big impact on, on course setup, right or wrong. It's the truth. And, and two with the runway T specifically, you only get yardage variation. You do not get angle variation. And that's very important to us to, uh, you know, again, for the replay value for strategy to be able to change the angle. So, so we're breaking the tees up, still trying to get flexibility in the yardage because just because a tee box is there, it doesn't mean that, that the blue tee has to stay on that box. It can go up to another box. Um, again, that's an operational standpoint and something that we would be banging our head, banging our head against the wall to try to, to try to sell a club on, on doing that. And I don't understand why it's so difficult to be honest. Um, so, so yeah, we're trying to get more angle options into the tees, uh, which is why we're breaking them up and uh, creating more of an array. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you had multiple runway tees at different angles, then, you know, that's awesome. But again, if you are not moving the tees around, you are wasting the maintenance effort on those tees. And that's just the reality for a lot of clubs, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, the the people who live in Eugene and throughout the Pacific Northwest have a reputation for being progressive. So perhaps they'll get on board with the, the moving of the tees from, from one side to the other and up and back, at least to begin with. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> well, you, Time you had to, Yeah, you had to... Um, at the Monterey Peninsula Dunes course, you also had to kind of go in there w- with a sense of history and the club behind you. And, and that golf course was really sort of lost, wasn't it? I mean, it was a, just to familiarize readers, this is Monterey Peninsula. They have two golf courses. The Dunes course was originally routed, I guess, by Seth Rayner. Maybe, I, I don't, I'm not sure you could speak to this, if it was actually constructed while he was still alive, uh, he and Charles Banks. And then McKinsey and Robert Hunter came in and, and kind of, reshape things and did some funky bunker work and then it kind of slid and morphed over the years and there were a couple different renovations and the course probably didn't have much of a focused identity by the time uh you and tim got there uh when you completed the renovation i believe in in in, uh, 2015 what were your discussions with the club and i'm gonna i'm gonna interject and uh, assume that a lot of architects who maybe wanted that job or would have thought about doing something there would have really wanted to try to bring back the Rainer aspect of it or, or really kind of McKinsey and, and Hunter right. the whole course up. What were your discussions with the club and, and, and what was the direction that you were proposing? So we asked, we always ask this to clients that we know have some degree of, of history um, to their course and property. And, and our question was very simple. Do you want this to be a restoration? And they said, no, right away. No, we want this to be the best course it can be tell us what that is. And, you know, we have a, a belief that just because it's old and, and just because a, a so-and-so great name touched it doesn't by default, make it great, you know, analyze it, look at it. Was it great? Could it have been better? 
You know, I mean, the, the old question of, you know, if, if, if the old golden age architects had, had the either dollars or the, or the machinery to do what we can do today, would they have done things differently? And you'll never know the truth answer to that, but it's, it's hypothetically uh, possible that they would have done things differently. Um, but the, the truth with the dunes course was it was a, you know, a, a lot of names touched it, but nobody really had ownership of it. It, it, there really wasn't anything to restore. Uh, looking back at old plans, there just was nothing worth going backwards to. Um, and, and we felt like we saw much, much better golf that was not, uh, in existence a hundred years ago. And so if the club had said we wanted to do a restoration, one of two things would happen. We would have either passed, um, because we're, we're just, we're not that type of architect right or wrong. Um, or we would have said, okay, let's, let's start doing some research and seeing what was there. Um, but ultimately we follow the client's lead. If, if they want a restoration, then that's what they'll get, whether with us or with somebody else, or if they want the best the course can be, then that's what they'll get with us or somebody else. And so the, the marching orders were set, you know, immediately they did not dwell over this at all. Um, it was never a discussion, just show us how good this course can be. And I think that, that, uh, they had confidence in that approach because of the success of what Mike Strantz did on the short course. You know, that was, um, that was completely re-envisioning, um, the short course, what he did there and tremendously successful. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, th I think that, that sat well with them and, and they realized that, you know what, let's, let's move forward, not backwards. Um, and, and so that was, that was it. We hit the ground running and started drawing up plans and drawing sketches of what, what everything could be. And, um, yeah, just, we were, uh, still pinch ourselves for that opportunity to be able to work on one of the courses on the Monterey Peninsula, just, a a tremendous opportunity, um, early on in our career and, and can't thank the club enough for their trust and support. And, uh, they've been very, very, very good to us, um, since then. So yeah. it's a special, special, special place and a special project in our, in our hearts. And, um, one that, uh, would be amazing if we could ever top later on in our career. So Hopefully we didn't peak early. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned strands and, and now your work is existing side by side with his, but you know, he's an architect that we speak of a lot in our profession because he had such a, an impact in a sh fairly short amount of time and with a small number of golf courses. But when we think of him and talk about him, it's somebody who has a very clear artistic vision. He, he diversified across his golf courses. He, and I think what we'd all agree most of on is, is he was an innovator and an artist in the fact that he would, play with shapes and bend things and and put things in front of the the golfer that we hadn't really seen before and maybe weren't normal and maybe other architects wouldn't think of doing and he he was able to and willing to do that and i think that from the work that i've seen that you and tim do like i would put you in that same category i'm wondering as a way of of kind of segueing this thought and we'll talk about some of that work. We'll continue to talk about that as we go along, especially at Scottsdale National. But when you were finished with uh, the Dunes course, 
Did you think that your telephone was going to start ringing off the hook and, and you were going to be able to get uh, just a, a wide variety of opportunities given the, the high level of creativity and artistry that you displayed on that project? Um, I, I don't, I actually don't know, but I mean, d- deep down, probably selfishly, we would, we would want to think so. And we might have, I don't recall ever, ever thinking that strongly. Um, I did have that feeling more so after Scottsdale national, um, but Monterey and, and we are incredibly proud of what we produced in Monterey. Um, and it is, is, uh, thankfully gotten wonderful reviews. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, so in in order to pull that project off, the club felt like they needed a little bit bigger name to support it. And so, you know, that project was technically on paper, a collaboration with Tom Fazio and, and to be quite frank, um, I personally, I'm not speaking for Tim, but I personally thought after that project was done that Tom was going to get all the credit and that we were just going to be kind of a footnote. And that's not necessarily um, at all how the club has positioned it. Um, they, they definitely respect and appreciate our, our inputs and what we've done there and and have uh, gone to bat for us, supporting us and, and promoting us. So that's, that's completely um, opposite of what I was anticipating. Um, but, but just in the back of my mind, you know, since it wasn't just our name, our credit, um, I thought realistically that we probably weren't going to realize, um, the benefit of it as much as if it were on our own on paper, even though it it was, it was, um, all us. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't think, uh, and try to put my, my, self back in that position in 2015. And, and I would say if I had an answer, honestly, I think, um, I didn't have high expectations for the phone ringing after that one and not because of what we produced, but just because of the technicality of, of the, uh, the credit line, so to speak. Um, but, but that's not been the case. Um, I wouldn't say the phone started ringing immediately, but we have realized tremendous benefit um, and upside from that project. So it's, it's been amazing. And, and we have Tom to thank because honestly, if Tom hadn't agreed to, um, partner up in this way that we would not have been involved period. So, um, we're very thankful for Tom's support and, and he's been tremendously generous and, and loyal to us since having parted in uh, 2009. So, I mean, he's just a, a tremendous, tremendously good guy. Um, and, and we owe a lot of our careers to, to his, his opportunities that he gave us early on in our careers. Mm-hmm. So, well, this might be a good chance to, to kind of reverse and, and go back to, to how you and, and Tim met. We spoke to Tim, Jim Urbina and I did on our salon podcast with, and, and Tim kind of explained it, but from your perspective, what were those, what was it like working with in the FASU organization? And, and just maybe succinctly, if you can, what, what was maybe the most important thing that you learned working in that organization under that banner? I would not wish to work for any other architect in the world, honestly. I mean, it's so fortunate to be a part of that organization for, you know, the, uh, the five years that I was. And, you know, we, the, the way Tom built his organization is he hired trustworthy guys and talented guys to 
to go do the work. And so, you know, we were afforded the opportunities and the experience to work on every aspect of a job from conceptualizing on paper to grading, to permitting, to bidding, to building. And so we learned everything and, and Tom afforded us that, uh, that freedom and that long leash and that opportunity. I mean, we were out there designing, we were not just yes, men, um, you know, laying out what he drew on paper. You know, we drew it on paper. We went out there, we laid it out. We made revisions, we made improvements. Um, ultimately we, you know, we're, we're still under the, the umbrella of, of Tom and his philosophy. So that was always in our back of our mind of how to design and how to make decisions. Um, but you know, we were afforded all the opportunities in the world to, to learn and, and mess up and, and, and get better. Um, and, and hearing and talking to other architects of a similar age as us that worked for other outfits, they did not have that same wide breadth of opportunity. And, and I firmly believe that Tim and I are, are as successful as we are now because of that exposure. And, and, uh, the second part of your question, this may sound silly, and, and I don't know if Tim mentioned it when he spoke to you guys, but um, <laughs> the thing the thing that stands out the most is just hide the cart path. Right. And, yeah. you know, and we learned a lot more than that from the organization. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to boil it down to one seemingly insignificant thing, and I don't believe it's insignificant, but hiding the functional components of the golf course. It's, it's one of those details that you don't realize how much of a visual and emotional impact that has until you point it out to somebody. When you stand on a course and just stare at concrete and just stare at, you know, uh, valve boxes and, and uh, uh, irrigation controllers, you know, you just, unfortunately, we all ex- expect just to see them. So it doesn't, it doesn't resonate as a negative, but once you point it out that, Hey, like, look at what you're looking at. It's ruining the visual. If you were to paint a picture uh, paint this scene from your brain, you would not add a cart path going down the middle and you would not add all these other functional elements. You just, you wouldn't because it's not pretty. And so it seems like an insignificant thing, but we spend so much time trying to hide and disguise those elements that absolutely you need them because they are functional. Um, but if you can pull off hiding them or obscuring them or softening them, it just lets your eyes focus on the important stuff, the beautiful stuff. Um, and, and that really is, um, if I had to pick one thing that to this day we stress over, um, it would be that. You mentioned, you know, you, you, were, you had the, the latitude to make adjustments, to suggest things. Uh, when you were on a Fazio project, as long as it sort of like stayed within the overall philosophy, what, what is there such a thing mm-hmm. as a Fazio philosophy beyond hiding the car paths? Or is that, I mean, there we equate, or I, I, I wouldn't speak for anybody else. When I think of Fazio courses, yeah. I just know, I, I know the, the extreme emphasis that's being placed on what your eye sees. Um, yep. Is, is there a philosophy beyond that? Or is it just, you know, creating the, the greatest composition, visual composition as possible? It is. It, it, he had kind of three marching orders. It was make it playable, make it beautiful, and hide the cart path. And in a weird way, hiding the cart path fits under the make it beautiful category, mm-hmm. I could argue. Um, and then if there was a sub topic, it would be 
honestly avoid controversy. Tom kind of made a career of just making very, very good and great, um, just solid, solid golf experiences. And, you know, somebody like Mike Strance was almost embraced the controversy. And, and I would say that, uh, myself and Tim are probably somewhere in the middle. I would probably go full Strance and, and do nothing but controversy to be different. <laughs> right. And, and Tim would probably shy more towards the Tom philosophy um, not fully, but, but more on that end of the spectrum and we meet in the middle and it, and it creates a great balance. It really does. Um, and so, you know, when Tom would come to a project and, and walk the site and review the work that had been done, inevitably there was always, you know, one or two kind of controversial bunker locations or controversial green slopes, false fronts, stuff like that, that were maybe a little too extreme for his taste. Um, and so that's, that's where he would make some input and, and suggestion to, you know, just to soften a bit. Um, and he's not wrong. You know, he, he made a career out of designing courses for very, you know, high end clientele and, and high net worth memberships. And, and those guys are not great at golf. And so when you put something controversial out there, it may, while some people may really love it, a lot of people are going to frown upon it and it's just going to put a little bad taste in their mouth and it's just something he wanted to avoid. So um, we knew that going into our projects and and we would have done things personally a little different here and there if, if not for that um, philosophy, but you know, we were under his, his banner and, and it was his way. Right. So yeah, we just kind of knew that going in, but um, yeah. What was the most impressive or interesting golf project that you worked on uh, by according to your tastes uh, while you were with Fazio or one of the Fazio courses that you saw while you were working with him. So in 2007, I believe I could get this wrong. It's been so long, six or seven. Um, the first job that I was allowed to kind of go in the field and spend days out there by myself um, was Shadow Creek. And it was the renovation of Shadow Creek, which is, which was very extensive. I mean, we turned over every blade of grass. Um, but I remember thinking the, the first time I pulled in there, not the, the first time I pulled in there to go work, I had played it um, years and years prior um, just as a golfer and was, you know, like most people completely floored at how amazing that experience is and, and how it was created in what it started as. And so I knew going into it that it was a very special place. And I vividly remember pulling through the gates the first morning I was going there, you know, knowing I was going to touch a paint can and, and start making changes and improvements. And I'm like, Oh God, just don't fuck this up. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I kept saying. Cause I knew how special it was. And I'm like, I'm not worthy. Like why, why am I out here all by myself? Like I'm still a rookie and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't have the confidence that definitely I have today. Um, you know, but just had a great contractor and, and great guys out there. And, and, uh, Scott Hoffman was another designer in the FASI organization at the time. And he was kind of lead on that project. And so I spent a lot of time with him just kind of understanding what, you know, what the goals of the project were and really just educating myself so I can implement the plan and not 
you know, I wasn't calling any audibles. I was just trying to implement the plan and, and not mess it up. Um, and so, you know, that's, that was really a really special, um, summer. It was a very quick project. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a very fast learning curve for me, which was great. Um, it was stressful at times, but there was so much going on and in such a condensed timeline that I just had to learn to make decisions fast and, and get confident and, and efficient with, with flagging and painting and, and directing. Um, and so it was, a, it was a great, great learning experience. And, and I don't think we messed it up too bad. Um, <laughs> So, you know, Shadow Creek is, is such an interesting. Like it. <laughs> yeah, no, Shadow Creek, and I, I'll I'll preface this by saying I I have never seen Shadow Creek, but it's such an interesting golf course in the in the architectural world. Is it's one of the few golf courses that is kind of now you know a lot of people love it. You know, maybe the majority of people love it. It's highly ranked, but but sort of the uh, the knowledgeable quote unquote. I say that sort of you know in in air quotes. Yeah. the knowledgeable people kind of ridicule it. At the same time, they're fascinated yep. by it, and it's sort of like Augusta right, National right. is in the same category. You know, it's a it's a golf course that everybody criticizes Augusta and, and and wants to change it and has a better idea, and yet they would they would stop at nothing to play it, and and every time it's on TV, they right. they you know, they love it and it's ranked highly. Yeah. So Shadow Creek kind of does that same thing to people. It's like it's like a object of, of ridicule for some reason, and yet fascination, and and you know you can't get yeah. it out of your mind. Right. I mean, the traditionalists aren't going to like it, right? I mean, completely manufactured golf course. So it's the antithesis of scratch it in, you know, and, and, uh, sure. If you're looking at it under the microscope of traditional golden age golf course architecture, yeah, it's blasphemy, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just different. And, and, you know, what that site proved to Tom in his career was, Hey, there's, there's no bad site for golf. If the owner's got the money, there's no bad side for golf anymore. Like we can create something truly special out of nothing. And that kind of catapulted his, his career and, and set himself apart and, and got projects that nobody else could, could do because they didn't know how to do it. So, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, he, that project created a niche in the market for him and he capitalized on it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not a sand Hills site. So what are you going to do? The owner has property here. He wants to build a golf course. We can just say, no, like you're going to build him a golf course. So it's going to cost a lot of money, but, um, yeah. And I mean, there are hundreds of desert golf courses at that time and, and there still are, then they're all very much alike, but there are only a few yeah. now that are like shadow Creek. And at the time it was the only one that was like that in the desert. Right. Right. Yeah. Now there, there are a handful. Um, but you know, it's uh it is a, feat of engineering. It's a feat of creativity. Um, and it is just, I don't care what you say. If you blindfold somebody and drop them in on the first tee and let them go play 18 and then blindfold them and take them away, like they're going to have nothing but good things to say. It is an awesome golf experience Mm -hmm. period. It just is. It's just took a different route to get there than some of the, you know, the, uh, the, the old school traditional golf properties, but so, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a, such a subjective thing, but I think when you really do try to study the golf course objectively, it's a really good golf course. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it's an amazing environment. And to think it started as flat desert is, is just, 
you have to be appreciative of of how it was created. And you um, mentioned a minute ago, you know, Fazio sort of had this, that was his revelation with that project, that if you could find an owner with money, then anything was possible and you, you didn't need a great golf site. And, and you had that basically a similar experience at Scottsdale National, you know, maybe not as limited a site well, parts of it was as limited as as a site, yeah. but um, you met a uh, you had an owner with money, and that was Bob Parsons, GoDaddy uh, founder, and then uh, PXG founder. He hired you and Tim mm-hmm. to build him a golf course from scratch, and you did something you know not the same at as Shadow Creek, but kind of following a, a similar model and creating something out of nothing with you know complete freedom. I'd love to talk about Scottsdale National, but. Uh, first, you have to uh, tell everyone how you got the job. <laughs> so, so um, we heard that Bob bought the the golf club Scottsdale in 2013. Uh, this was the fall of 2013, and we, my dad actually reached out to me because uh, he's a member at Whisper Rock, and and Mr. Parsons was there at Whisper Rock at the time. And so my dad kind of uh, heard first that that he had bought the course, and he's and he called me up. He's like, "Hey, you should you should send send Bob a message, um, telling me you want to talk." I'm like, "Yeah, he's just gonna delete our message." And so I kind of relay that message to Tim, and we talk about it a little bit. And, and Tim's like, "Well, what what's the harm? I was just send him a message. So he hits delete. He hits delete. Who cares?" I'm like, all right. So we draft him an email, and and really short and sweet, just kind of congratulate him on his new acquisition. Say we're, we're uh, young local architects, hungry. Uh, you know, we have some good ideas for your property. Would love five minutes of your time to chat. That was it. Hit send. This was on a Friday. Fully expecting, okay, that either went to junk or right into the trash. <laughs> yeah. Like we're never going to hear from him. And, and before then, and to this date, we have never cold called or cold emailed a prospective client ever is this the only time we've ever done it. And, and so that was on a Friday and Monday we get a call from a guy, uh, Steve Gabay, who turns out to be Bob's right-hand man. And he's like, uh, Bob got your email. Um, do you have time this week to come out and walk the property? Like, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> um, and so at the time, um, it was me, Tim and Scott Hoffman, who again had had uh, since been le- then had left the Fazio organization and joined us, and and Scott uh, is is a great friend and and tremendous tremendous talent. Uh, me personally, I think he's the the best living architect today, in my opinion. Um, so talented, and so you know it was it was the three of us, and and since Scott lives in the same neighborhood as me, um, Scott and I went up and met with Steve on the existing course and drove around all 18 and just chatted. And, and meanwhile, our, our, let's go back to that email. We sent Bob, we said that we had some great ideas for his property. That was complete BS. We had no ideas for the property. We didn't know anything about it. Um, but, but we're, we're confident enough to know that we can come up with ideas. If we see any property, our brains flood with ideas. It's just, it's why we do what we do. They may not Close be good ideas, but we come up with ideas. Waterfalls. Yeah. Streams. Yes. <laughs> be the ball. Yeah. And so we um, we were walking around talking with, with Steve, and we get up to the 15th green, which is a par five, and 15, 16, 17, and 18 on the original course 
was uh, up in the mountainous range, the mountainous terrain on the property. So it was very, uh, I wouldn't call it severe, severe land, but way more severe than the rest of the course. And the 15th hole in particular was uh, unanimously disliked. It had a three-tier green that if you were one foot above the hole in any position on the green and missed your putt, you ended up 80 yards off the front of the green. That was the only result. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that with a couple other elements on the golf hole, it was just, it was wanting to be redone. And so we stopped there and Steve started telling us, you know, Bob really doesn't like hole 15 and hole 18 for reasons X, Y, and Z. And And so will you, you know, do you have any ideas of what we could do to fix this? And we're just spouting off ideas. And then Scotty says, well, you know what we could do? We could take the four holes off of the mountain, reroute the the 14 at the base, add four more and create a walkable 18 down there and convert the mountainous terrain into a par three course. And, and Steve's like, you can do that. He's like, yeah, you got, you got plenty of land. You can do that. And, and, and Steve said, well, you got to tell Bob that he's going to love that. And we're like, mm, okay, <laughs> how do we tell Bob? Where is he? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we finished the tour and, and, uh, and we get a call from Steve again saying, Bob wants to meet you on Friday. This was a week after our first email. And so we, we spent the next three days drawing up plans. I mean, fully rendered plans, like absolute end of a project, full presentation materials in three days. And, and we showed him what holes 15 through 18 could look like if we just renovated them. And then we showed him what that space could look like as a par three course and how the rest of the course could be modified. And so, you know, went to Kinko's, got it all printed out. And what we learned early on, dealing with Bob is you have to answer his question first, give him what he wants. And then, and only then can you show him alternatives. So, and this was all Steve Gabay's um, insight. He, he, he was instrumental in, in uh, allowing us to successfully navigate Bob. And so we, we meet with him on Friday and we put this plan in front of him and we walk through what 15 through 18 could be. And he's, you know, he's liking what he's seeing, but he's not, not really getting too excited. And then, and then we say, you could do that or, and we flip the plan open and we show them this new plan of par three course and an 18 hole walkable course. And we kind of walk through the bullet points of that conceptually high level conversations, not, you know, bunkers going here, bunkers going there. And, and he like stops in his track and he looks at us. He's like, you can do this. Like, yeah, just give us the green light and set us free. And he's like, well, you know what I'd really like boys. I'd really like 36 holes in a par three course. And I got, I kind of just jokingly said, well, <laughs> go find us more land and you know who to call. Like you don't have enough space. You cannot build 36 holes in a par three course on one golf course's property. And, uh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't, show his hand or, or make any reaction to that. But little did we know he was already working on acquiring more land. Um, and so we, we, we got, in, he engaged us to redo holes 15 and 18 that year in 2014. And we completely renovated those um, successfully. And, and that was kind of our first uh, 
project with him, got him to trust us. Um, and we started planning and, and talking about the new 18 and the new par three course on the property he started to acquire uh, to the west of the current course. And the funny thing about that is every time we would draw a plan and go in to present to him before we even opened our mouth and unrolled the plans, he said, boys, I bought more land. <laughs> so, so really, I just three times specifically, Scott and I went in there with the plan all rolled up. Again, fully rendered plans. And and he said, boys, I bought more land. And I just threw the plans on the ground. We're like, okay, show us the new boundary. We'll get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened, yeah, three different times until he he uh locked in on the on the extents of the property. Um there's so much about this great. project that is so unrealistic to people who are in the design world will just be shaking their head. You know, normally it's yeah, the it's the designer who who begs the owner and said, if we could just get th- those 10 acres over there, we right? could really make this yeah. thing work. And then it takes it's strange because we kept telling him every time he would question our plan, he's like, oh, it looks tight to me. We're like, Bob, no, it's, there's plenty of space. Grant, I mean, we're talking about 200 plus acres. Like there's plenty of room, Bob. It's not tight. And he's like, ah, it needs, needs more room. I'll buy more land, you know? <laughs> just, and, and yes, he wanted more breathing room maybe in between the golf holes, but ultimately he wanted to make sure that he limited the exposure of potential houses going up around the periphery. And so he just wanted to buy as much buffer as he could. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, the experience is all better for it. I mean, he's, he's way more forward thinking than, than anyone else I've ever met in my life. Um, and, and obviously has the, the cash to, to back it up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't foresee ever having a project like this again in our careers. Um, definitely kind of a one in a, a million type guy. And, and, and he just so happens to want to build golf. So well, you knew the uh, important thing is you knew what to do with it when you, when you got it. Uh, I think, you know, and Tim spoke to this about, you know, your background being who you were enabled you to, to, to maximize this landscape that, that, that he offered you because right. a lot, vast portions of it actually were, uh, had previously been owned by a home developer who had graded flat, this desert, you know, he's going to build homes and streets on it. And that's what you inherited in many parts. You know, you just basically a flat, it looks like a, it looked like a concrete pad almost. And, and so it yeah. demanded, uh, some artistic vision and engineering know-how to create a desert landscape upon which then you could build golf holes. Right. Yeah. 80 acres of the property had already been graded for home sites. Um, no utilities were in, but it was definitely padded and devegetated. There was nothing. And, you know, 80 acres, I'd say it's about a third of the golf course spatially. Um, and, and even the remaining acreage was, you know, ravished by a fire in the mid nineties. And so the landscape itself was, was weak. It, it wasn't beautiful Sonoran desert. Uh, and, the only thing the property had going for it was its tremendous long range views it better than any other property I'd ever been on in the Valley. Um, it's just East of this rise, um, on, on dynamite road and, and down to the Rio Verde Valley and, and just the nature of the land. It, it gives you like 270 degree views of, of all these different mountain ranges that are so kind of, uh, unique and different 
the, you know, every direction you turn. And when you're in the more of the West Valley, say where, you know, Whisper Rock is or something, you kind of only look south to the very distant mountains, you know, past downtown Phoenix. And it's, it's just not as dramatic, you know, and then you get Estancia, which is right in um, Pinnacle Peak. And so you get those really close up views of the mountain and the terrain and the boulders. It's just fantastic. I mean, Estancia is my opinion of the best natural site in the desert here in Scottsdale, but, but what Scottsdale national had, especially where the other course got built up higher on the property is just these amazing long range views. And so that's really all we had to go off of when we started routing was making sure we aligned as many holes to as many different views as we could. And then it was up to us to create the, the foreground and the immediate view, um, to kind of, you know, create the interest for the golfer. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, our experience with Tom and working on big mass earthwork projects, um, you know, Tim and Scott were, were intimately involved with Madison club, which moved, you know, four and a half million yards of dirt, which was three times what we moved to Scottsdale national. So when we started getting involved and, and talking with Bob and talking with Steve and, you know, we, we kept assuring them that this, this is not a tough project. Yes. It's going to cost money, but we, we, we got it. We know exactly what we need to do. We know the, we know all the players that need to be involved because this is way bigger than just us. You know, we, we know the engineer that needs to be involved. We know the stream and water feature company that needs to be involved. We know the landscape architect that needs to be involved. All these sub consultants have done projects bigger than this. It will not scare them. They know exactly what needs to be done. And so, you know, we were able to help assemble that dream team and, and get it done. A little bit reminds me of, of, a, of a project like Calusa Pines, for instance, where you, you kind of create one massive sort of central feature there. It was harvesting sand and building up a big kind of like dunes ridge and uh, holes run up, uh, up and down it. Here you did something similar uh, in a different way, though. To create a desert, sort of almost this little ridge mountain, you excavated a, a massive amount of material uh, created a lake there and then built up around, you know, kind of between the, the 10th and 18th holes, this long dunes ridge that flows and, and then it kind of wraps around and, and goes uh, up along this the second hole. And, and, and that was sort of like a, a, a neat trick, a necessary trick to, to do. And, and when you get there and you look at this, you would have no idea that it wasn't natural. I mean, I say that, I know I sound like a, like a, uh, you know, an engineering dummy when I say that it's like, Oh, look, you know, that look at that actor. you never would have known that he's really not, you know, an astronaut, but <laughs> it was, it's done so effectively. Um, and, and as you mentioned that all of the, the subcontractors that you used in, to, to vegetate this pile of, of rocks that you moved and created and, and, and to put the right desert material on it. I mean, it, to me, you say it's, it, you know, there are projects that were much bigger and much more extensive than this, but this, this really uh, is an impressive feat. Yeah. You know, what I meant by that comment was we've, we've moved a lot more material, um, you know, a million and a half yards to certain architects is, is 10 more, 10 times what they would ever want to move or could move. Um, but we've moved, you know, we've moved a lot more than a million and a half yards before. So we were, we were very confident in managing that amount of dirt. Um, the, the, what we learned most from, um, some of the senior designers with Tom learning about, um, you know, shadow Creek and how that was done and why it was successful to the eye 
it's when you move a lot of dirt, it's, it's, it's where you move it to that can or cannot trick the eye in making it believe a believable landscape. And, and, and so we understood that when you move big dirt, you've got to move big dirt. Don't just put little mounds everywhere. Don't spread it out, you know, concentrated into big, big features that don't just sit next to a hole. They meander through three or four or five holes, you know, big lows that, that start on one hole. Don't just stay on one hole. They carry through to a couple more holes. Once that scale gets big enough, your eye cannot perceive where it starts and where it finishes. Therefore you think it's, I hate using the word real. It's all real, but you think it's natural because it's, it's of a scale that your brain can't comprehend. Um, and so when you think about kind of shaping in the, in the mid eighties, where it was a lot of, uh, humpy bumpies and mounds, um, your eyes like, well, that doesn't look like anything I've seen in nature. So my brain's telling me that that's manufactured, right? Even though that was a lot less dirt moved. Um, so we learned that trick, um, with Tom, um, and, and we were able to implement that at, at Scottsdale national. And, and, you know, the biggest compliment that we get when we bring people out there is, is the fact that they cannot believe where and how much dirt we moved because that's our goal. We don't want you to know where we move the dirt. We had to move the dirt to create interest. We didn't want to move the dirt. Um, we had to create uh, a, a view from the clubhouse where they situated it. There was no view. There was no horizon line. And so, you know, a lot of the big earthwork concept came from that need. We had to create a new horizon line uh, looking from the clubhouse up the 18th hole. So what did we do? Well, we cut the 18th green down 30 feet and we filled, uh, you know, the start of the fairway on the mountain to the left 70 feet. So we created a hundred feet of elevation change right out out of the clubhouse. And it's done at such a large scale that your eye believes it is to be natural. What kind of, what kind of golf course did Bob Parsons want? Um, different. <laughs> He wanted something different. Mm -hmm. He wanted a desert course that was unlike any other desert course. He wanted every par three to be different than all the other par threes and same for the fours and fives. He wanted it to be fun. He wanted it to be memorable. All those key trigger words. That's it. That's all he directed. It's all he demanded. And and he held our feet to the fire to make sure that we delivered that. Um, it was the most intensive paper design phase that we've ever done. Um, and I'm not talking about the detail of, you know, where's that bunker? How far is it from the T? Nothing like that. He did not get into that level of detail of design. Um, but he did make us prove to him how it was going to be different, how it was going to be memorable, how it was going to be better, how it was going to be unlike anything else in the desert. And we brought to the table all the ideas. And I would say 90 plus percent of our ideas, he, he gave the thumbs up, said, okay, I like it. And then it was just up to, it was up to us to detail it out and, and execute. But he was, completely hands off once he signed off on the plans and more, more the concept of the plans. He knew, he knew that, you know, things are going to change in the field and, but we understood the marching orders. We understood the, the goals. And, um, we also understood that if he didn't like something when it was done, we would just change it. Um, 
that was that was clearly communicated to us <laughs> um but he he gave us you know something way more important than an unlimited budget when we got into the field he gave us unlimited creativity and as a de- designer that's all that's all you want ultimately you get in this industry at least me personally and tim i mean to be creative and to design interesting things for people to experience and unfortunately more times than not ownership membership committees you name it they get in the way and they complicate things mm-hmm. they try to interject their own um, armchair architect ideas and sometimes you can navigate around them and sometimes you can't um, and it's a shame it's really a shame but we owe bob the biggest thanks and high five for giving us no leash um and like I said, it, it the, the the unlimited budget helped, without a doubt. I mean, because of the goals he wanted and what we had to start with, it was inevitable that it was going to cost a lot of money. I mean, we made a sixty foot cut to build a lake on number nine, and eighteen inches down, we hit solid bedrock. So, you know, that didn't scare Bob. All right, seventy blasts later, we <laughs> we had the uh, you know the material to then shuttle around the property and, and build our our environment. Um, so, so yes, the, the, yeah. the unlimited budget was important to meeting his goals, but that place is special because of the creativity of the, the freedom of creativity that he gave us, not the unlimited budget. I don't think there's anything naturally virtuous in a golf course that has uh, a design with every hole is different and it has, it's, it's balanced with dog legs this way, dog legs this way you know, or different lengths. It can be great, you know, but there can be golf courses that have sort of a a consistent theme to them or a consistent green Mm -hmm. size. You know, St. Andrews has uniformly giant greens across the board and that that's not a detraction. But when you play a golf course like Scottsdale natural national, that does have such variability as, as to use what your earlier word. uh, And it does have just these huge swings of holes uh, of different lengths and different, every hole has you know, most holes have a different character than the last. The the, uh, the routing turns you to take advantage of those horizon views, and the green sizes vary widely. You had a, a green at the fifth hole that's twenty three thousand square feet. You have another green that's I think eighteen thousand square feet, and then you have some really small greens. What I mean, what is the what's the uh, fourth hole green? Is that the smallest on the golf course? Um, uh, seven is actually the smallest seven. at about four thousand. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. that's the, the four is, the four range is incredible. And yeah, and yeah, I mean, it, you it know, creates a it creates a playing experience that is is really really exciting. And if you remember there, and you did get the chance to play it all the time, it would just create uh, so many different scenarios and so many different ways you could play the golf course because it has, you know thinking of RTJ, it has that flexibility and that, that dynamism that would create different golf outcomes from day to day. Right. So, you know, we, we always try to go into a project thinking, maximize flexibility, maximize variety. That's always one of our big goals. And, and sometimes, like I said, a client can get in the way of that. Other times just the natural property can get in the way of that. Other times budget can get in the way of that. But more so than any other project, Bob forced us to prove to him before we started building how all these holes are going to be different. And, you know, cause he made a comment of, of, um, Whisperock specifically, cause he belonged there at the time of this conversation that he's like, you know, there's like three or four par fours on, on the course there that just 
they feel the same. He's like, I do not want any of that. And, and just him demanding us put uh, presentation sheets together to show him how the holes are going to be different forced us to really go above and beyond in our own design process to make sure that that happened. And, and it was a tremendous exercise for us. Um, and I'm not sure we would have gone to that extent had he not demanded it. So he, 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 he's a huge part of, of why, of why that course is successful. Um, and, and that's, it's, it's really, really, um, it is, it's, it's, it's all about the replay value, you know? I mean, just, there's, there's nothing worse in my, in, in my personal mind than being a member at a club playing the same tee over and over and playing the, you know, small greens where the pin may move 15 feet here, 15 feet there. And they're just kind of flattish pitched. Um, it's just, it's boring. It may be a great golf course, but it's boring to play over and over and over. It's repetitive. And that's what we really strive for in our, in our designs is to not be repetitive. Um, and, and a lot of that falls on course setup too. Um, and we try to stress the importance of moving that around a lot. But the design has to have it built in or else it's just, it's just one dimensional. Um, you know, I mean, the, the other course discussed on national is about polar opposite of the South course at Firestone, you know, oh, just God. <laughs> yeah. straight tree line, you know, it's just, and, and, and it, that's a great test of golf, but I wouldn't want to play it every day. It just would get mundane. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when Bob told us the high level, goals um the elements that we pitched to him to to meet those goals were um in, immediately we went well we can't build another desert golf course right it can't be a target golf course so we want continuous grass from the first tee to the 18th green and that's what we have out there in fact continuous fairway and we we proposed a 666 routing which was is is not common but not, not, it's not rare in, in golf, but it's not common. And the twist we put on that was making sure that no par ever repeated. So you're always bouncing around. You're not playing par four or par four. Um, so it's, it's just got a great cadence to the flow of the round. You're always presented with something different on the next hole. And it's, it's, it's something psychologically that maybe people can't pinpoint if not told but it definitely resonates with your subconscious. You, you, you realize it's a unique and special experience. And that is one of the elements that, that does it, I believe. Um, and you know, we got wide play spaces, um, a lot of angles, um, big, big contouring, you know, wide variety of green sizes, like you say, wide variety of green contouring. Um, you know, all those things go completely against traditional desert golf. Um, and, and first and foremost to be different than the other course he had on the property. Um, but more so from his eyes to be different than any other golf course in the Valley. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, he, he loved all those ideas and, uh, we put those on paper and proved them out in, in detail. And, uh, we got the stamp of approval and off we went. As we kind of start to wind it down, David, I'll maybe pull back and, and go with some, some a couple maybe points of conversation that are bigger picture the, the 17th hole at Scottsdale national is your, that's your drivable par four there. The tees that mm-hmm. maybe the members play from are maybe 299 or, or 270 or less. And 
again, the T's are flexible. You, they're really expand, you know, they're, they, you could slide them, really pin it anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yep. to, to your point earlier about wanting to be flexible in Eugene Country Club, it's a great hole. Do you think that the short par four is overused in contemporary architecture? No, I think it's underused. I, th- I think, I think still underused. I think great short par fours are underused. I think there's too many poorly done short par fours. Um, again, personally, just speaking for myself, one of my bucket list courses to design before I'm done is 18 drivable par fours. I think it would be a phenomenal experience. Um, it is most golfers when asked what their favorite holes are, are either short threes, short fours or short fives. They're more fun. They're more fun. And you got everything from Eagle to triple bogey in play if designed right. Um, versus, you know, a 500 yard par four. That's just very one dimensional. It's just, well, I just got to hit it as hard as I can try to find the fairway and hit a long iron into the green and try to two putt. It's just, it doesn't have the dynamic nature of short holes. So, you know, I would, I would love to design 18 drivable par fours. I would love to design a course that's just short three, short fours and short fives. That would be fun. Uh, you know, and, and, it, and it's not by default easier. This whole uh, mentality of adding length to, to get more challenge back in the game is, I think, I think counterintuitive. Um, you know, I, I think shortening courses and getting more quirky and getting more, um, for lack of a better term, uh, strancy, right, and controversial. Yeah. I think that's more engaging and interesting golf than just long and, and, uh, and I don't know the right yeah, phrase championship um, caliber golf course. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and, 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 and I'm not even talking about tour players. Um, but it's, it's no, I, I don't think there's enough great short fours in golf. Um, I love them every time I step onto the tee, I love them. Um, and it's, it's, uh, well, what's the, what's the key then you know, to building a great short par four? Because to me, it's, you have to have, you have to present a binary choice. You either have to go for the green or you have to lay up to a certain far back distance. A, sh- a good sh- short par four mm-hmm. is not one where you can almost get to the green or, you know, hit right. a 230 yard shot and still have an easy shot in. Like you have to make a decision and the penalty for not being able to pull it off, you know, has to be significant. Um, but to do right. that 18 times is hard. What do you think? What are your thoughts about what makes a, a great short par four? You know, it, it all starts at the green design for me. There has to be certain hole locations that make you question going for it or make you question laying up to a certain distance and angle to being able to attack that pin. Um, and, and yeah, the, the hazard value has to be there. There has to be a, a, a butt puckering it factor to it. And, you know, I, I know I say I want to design 18 drivable fours. Um, I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if that would be like a really, really difficult challenge to not only get enough variety between those holes, but to be able to do them successfully 18 times. I don't know, but I would love the challenge. Um, and you know, a lot of the holes on the other course from the forward tees are phenomenal drivable par fours. And I like playing those tees more than any other tees on that course. And I don't necessarily shoot any better from a score standpoint, but it's just more exciting um, the, the opportunity to make Eagles, even though I walk away with pars most of the time, because inevitably you're going to, you're going to try to be Superman and hang yourself, you know? 
um, I don't have the discipline to lay up on a hole that's only 250 yards, right? It's like, well, no, I, <laughs> right. can, I can get there, no problem. But, but if you don't execute it right, you're in a world of hurt. Um, so, you know, I, I just, it, it's, it's creating options. It's having width. It's, it's having angles. Um, it's all how you present the green and the hazards. And I would, like I said, I would love the challenge and opportunity to, to see what 18 of those looks like. Cause I don't know, I don't have a picture in my mind's eye. I just know from a golfing standpoint, I think that would be a tremendously engaging and exciting experience. Yeah, if done probably, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know absolutely. if it can be done right. I don't know. I feel like it could be, but um, like I said, you know, going back to the strands conversation, I don't think he was ever scale, scared to fail or offend anybody. He just did kind of what made him happy. And, and I think if more architects were out there doing that or more owners allowed architects to do that, I think we'd have a lot more interesting products out there. I really do. We'd have some flops for sure, but you gotta, you gotta fail every once in a while to try to find the next best thing, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying golf is broken by any means, but there's a lot of repetition and sameness out there across the board. We probably should have covered this earlier, but I, as you've been speaking and, and we've had this conversation and, and knowing what your kind of thoughts on architecture and proclivities are, what, what were your, I mean, how did you get introduced to architecture? And I'll preface this by saying when I was younger and I'm a little older than you, I had, I looked at golf books picture books, you know, golf digest, top 100 books, best courses you can play, you know, world's greatest courses, just these generic books that had photographs yeah. of golf courses from all over the world. And I fell in love with golf courses and I knew, you know, oh, that's Inverness that Donald Ross designed that. And, and he did Pinehurst too. Oh, he did Seminole. And that was sort of in my brain, but it was more about the golf course. It was never really, I never identified anything really with an architect unless it was Pete Dye because his golf courses when I was growing up were coming on the scene and they were, they were so, they were such, you know, things that you had to pay attention to and they were so fabulous. Then I think when you get into the late nineties into the two thousands, when a lot of younger people in the design profession um, who are working today were, were cutting their teeth, you get into the information age, the internet, and we really start to drill down on golf history and, and we start to understand like, oh, Alistair McKenzie was this, Donald Ross was that, he, um, Flynn was this, here's Colt, here's Perry Maxwell. And all of a sudden, the, the and not all of a sudden, but gradually there's this sort of this cult of architecture that comes up and people who are learning about architecture now sort of gravitate toward these older styles and these specific architects instead of just the golf course in itself. So I came up to the golf course and then learned, you know, went back and learned about these things. I'm curious to you, what was your influence? Did you come up in that age where you were identifying with architects specifically that or and their styles and trying to learn about what they were thinking and doing? Or was it some other avenue into architecture and design that brought you to Auburn? So I mentioned before, I started playing golf when I was 18 months old. So, you know, before my memory serves me, my, I've, I've been playing golf my whole life. I don't recall a point in time where I didn't play golf or love the game and competitive golf was my youth and, and high school and, and just into a blip of college. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to go around and play a lot of great courses in the country. I probably experienced more great golf in high school than I do today, hands down for sure. Um, 
and so, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of different looks and a lot of different architects. Um, and my eye just naturally liked what it liked at the time. Um, but it didn't, I didn't like get, you know, an architecture book and start studying Pete Dye or Donald Ross or any of those. I, I never was interested in that. And I'll be honest, I'm still not today. And that's, you know, that's just who I am. Um, and when I was uh, in grade school, uh, my parents were nice enough to build a tiny little artificial putting green in my backyard, lived on a cul-de-sac, just a little, you know, half acre lot. And I had, a, it, it was a green that was maybe 12 foot by 10 foot, just, you know, with three holes in it. It was tiny. And, and I would hit sand wedges every day. Um, and I would, I just started routing little golf courses, chipping courses around my house, starting in the cul-de-sac, you know, going all over the place, par fours, par fives, I'd make scorecards. And, and that's really where I got the itch. And, and there was no real inspiration. I just had a green in my backyard. I was sick of hitting from the same spot. So I'm like, well, let's go over here and hit, let's go over here and hit. And well, you know what, let's maybe make it two shots. Maybe I start on the other side of the house, I have to chip across the driveway, get the good angle, avoid the tree and then go to the green. And so, you know, I kind of just felt my way through design just around my yard. Um, and, and I used the elements I had as hazards, whether it be trees or the house or the driveway, um, or the cul-de-sac. And, and it just, you know, I, I just, I got the itch. I just wanted to create fun golf shots, no matter what I was looking at. I didn't care if I was in my hallway at school, like, well, this would be a fun shot to punch one down this hallway and <laughs> get it around the corner. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just see golf everywhere I go. It didn't even have to be on golf land. And and that's that's really it. From that day on, I think I was seven years old when that started. And I just always wanted to create fun golf. That's it. And and, and you know, I kept playing, kept playing, kept playing competitively. And when I got looking into colleges, I realized that I was good at golf, but probably not going to make it on tour. And I don't want to be that guy that lives out of his car for 10 years on mini tours, trying to make it, it just didn't excite me at all. And so I was like, I'll, I'll take a shot. And so I, I found a school that had, that would let me on the golf team and had a landscape architecture degree as a backup. Cause I knew realistically that that that's probably where the direction was taking me. And, and uh, Auburn was um, nice enough to offer me a spot on the team and, and had that backup. So, so that's where I went. Um, but, but even up to that point, I never, I never researched or associated with a certain architecture style or I, I made a, I guess a subconscious decision or it's just my personality. I've never, ever been a fan of history of anything. I just, I, <laughs> the way my brain's wired, people knock me for it. I really don't care. It's, I'm not being mean or offensive. I just, I don't, I'm, I'm a, I look towards the future. I don't look towards the past. And, and so even to this day, I try not to pay attention to what our other architects are doing because I don't want that to influence what I do. I want to try to be that, you know, even though I love, love, love strands, you know, I try not to look at his stuff too much because I, th I think I'm going to start, you know, that's just going to infuse into what I do because it's so awesome. Yeah. 
Um, could seep in I want to be, I want to be different and I want to try things that no one else is doing. Um, because I see, I see there's value in that. Um, you know, I guess not too unlike Tom found a niche of building courses where courses shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and like I said earlier, it's, it's, you know, the, the perspective and skill set that Tim brings in, I mean, we're, we're a perfect couple, um, for business and, and for what we do, we, you know, we, we both, um, can do it all, but we're better together. Um, what I know, Tim doesn't know what he knows. I don't know. Um, what I think is great. He questions me on what he thinks is great. I question him on and, and we always end up somewhere better. Um, you know, I think we each would be less successful individually than we are together. So, um, we've got a great partnership, um, and we can be honest with each other. We can have flat out arguments about stuff and move on. No hard feelings. Just, you know, we're all after the same thing. We want the best product for the client, whatever that may be. Um, and I will always to a T say, I'll throw out the crazy ideas. <laughs> it's like, well, I've never seen this done. Let's try that. I'm like, eh, I don't know if this is the right place for that. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, but I keep throwing them out. So uh, I, I really do try to shelter myself from other architects, even though I appreciate what they've done. I love playing a lot of architects golf courses. I do. Um, but I just don't want to do what they're doing because quite honestly, that's, plagiarism <laughs> yeah we didn't even get into the bad little nine which is obviously a, a place where you could throw a lot of interesting and wild architectural ideas out there yeah. so anyway we'll, yeah. we we could talk about that in, in another time um i, I would do want to ask you and i ask this all the time what's the what's the best modern golf course you've ever played or, or your favorite modern golf course friar's head why <laughs> um because because i, I love created like you would have had to create it no no like i said i don't even know the history of the place uh -huh. i don't i don't and and people may knock me for it and it, it you know i'll say whatever <laughs> but it's like i don't i don't care to know i appreciate it for what it is it's beautiful i mean the the property just the, the first impression role have you been first of all no the first impression rolling in, um, you, you round this corner and the clubhouse just hits you. And it is one of the most spectacular feats of architecture I've ever seen. It is just the most beautiful structure. Um, and, and the, the, the conglomeration of the clubhouse and first tee and ninth green and 10th tee and putting green is just that old school tight connection. Just everything's right there. And, and, the golf shots, the variability on that course, the the scenes that they created, um, it's off the charts. It is so good. It is so good. And it doesn't matter to me how they got there. It's what it is. What it is is phenomenal. If they found that site the way it is and scratched in, great. If they created the whole thing, great. Whatever and however they did it, it is, it's a grand slam. It is, it's the most impressive it's number, it's not, I don't even, it, you, I know you position the question as modern golf, but it's the best golf course I've ever played. If I offer you and I are my it. private jet right now, when we could fly anywhere in the world to, to play one round of golf, would it be Friar's Head? Well, no, because I've played it. 
And that doesn't mean I don't want to go back, but right. if you're giving me one, yes. round, so where are we going? I'm going to go play somewhere I haven't. Where are we going? <sighs> it's so tough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's so tough. I mean, uh, it's, oh gosh, I, I can't pick one. How, how much fuel is in the jet? <laughs> <laughs> We're just Can flying until we, till we crash. I, I don't know where, I mean, I mean, I want to play Pine Valley, but I don't even know if that would be, I just want to play it cause I haven't, you know, do I want to play it because I think it'll be my favorite? Yes or no. I don't know, but I want to play it cause I haven't, um, I haven't played overseas at all. So, you know, there's a lot of courses in Ireland and Scotland that I'm drooling over to see. Um, and, and, uh, rolling back to strands, I still have not played tobacco road. Hmm. So that's number one on my bucket list to play. I just have to see that for myself. Um, well, you'll, you're going to have a pretty up close view of that. Not in not too long. I know. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to check that out. Uh, just haven't spent much time in that part of the country. So I haven't, haven't seen it, but, um, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just a golf fan. I just like playing golf. I can appreciate the podunk munis that have four blades of green grass on it. Like it doesn't matter. You put a hole in the ground somewhere. I'm gonna go play golf and I'm going to have fun. Um, I, you know, I think the whole, the conditioning and, and the, 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 the status of what people nowadays thinks are great golf courses. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're great, but comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. You know, I just, I'm just a fan of the game. Um, and I just like trying to hit that little ball into a hole. So I don't care where you put it. I'm going to have fun. Well, it helps if you're um, really good at getting the ball in the hole. Well, it, it helps, it helps the enjoyment factor yeah. a little bit, but it also makes it painstakingly frustrating when it doesn't go in. So, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, thanks for joining us. And, uh, and I say us as the, all the people who are, who listen to this, but we'll be thinking about you this uh, coming week and um, encourage everybody to go to fourbatten.org and, and check out the auction and, and look at what the bids are and what the opportunities are and, and contribute and help in any way you, that y'all can. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's um, I'm looking at the site right now and it's, it's just growing every day. The support we're getting is, is outrageous and unexpected and, and so much appreciated. And I know it's going to keep growing before this auction's over. And, um, I can't believe that I'm going to say we're probably going to better last year's auction. Cause that's hard to believe, but we're, we're trending that direction. So, um, it's, uh, it's truly amazing what the golfing community has done to come together. And, um, it's, it's fun to watch. So it's, uh, no, I mentioned this before. It's something, I really wish we didn't have to do, but, um, it, it's our way of putting up a fight and, and we could not and cannot do it alone. So it's, uh, it's pretty special what the golf community is, is doing to rally behind us it really is. David Kahn and I started off and ended talking about his golf game, which is remarkable for how little time he has to pay attention to it. His best score at Scottsdale national is a 61 from the hybrid tees and a 64 from the championship tees. I mean, he can swing it. So Scottsdale National was a real surprise for me. Even though Tim Jackson spoke about the course of Jim Rubina and I, 
and I actually had the pleasure of playing it with Urbina and David Kahn. I wasn't prepared for the variety of sizes and shapes the two designers were allowed to utilize. I'll take a great set of greens over just about any other component of a golf course, and Scottsdale National has one of the widest arrays of green sizes and mind-bending shapes and rolls and steps that I think I've ever encountered. The whole thing is like a multi-dimensional piece of art, and it's just a shame for David and Tim that it's so private and exclusive, and that the owner has no desire for it to be evaluated in any rankings. I mean, it would be such a boon to the reputation of Jackson Kahn if it were. I commented at the end of the podcast about David being closer to Strands' work in North Carolina. I said that because the Cons are currently building a house there to be closer to the medical experts at Duke. Let's all wish them the best and hope their family can find some peace and the care that Amelia and Mackenzie need. Not many people would consider playing Tobacco Road a mental or emotional reprieve, but knowing now a little bit more about the way he sees golf and golf design, I have the feeling that it's exactly the kind of place David Kahn would want to go to when he needs an escape. The Forbatten Auction is from March 15th through March 29th, 2021. If you're able, it would help greatly to place a bid on an item, and you can also make a direct contribution to the fight against juvenile batten disease at forbatten.org. Please help if you can. My sincerest thanks to David for opening up and sharing with us the extreme difficulties his family is going through. I'm thankful for that, but I'm also thankful that we did get to spend a good amount of time talking about golf. Feed the Ball is presented by Golf Digest. Please rate and review it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your entertainment. Or better yet, tap that little rectangle thing with the arrow in it and share it with other people that you know who love golf courses and their place in the game. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. My selection of the 18 most underrated holes on the PGA Tour is running in the current issue of Golf Digest. Check that out. And in issue four, we'll be releasing our long-awaited latest edition of America's 100 Greatest Courses. Look for that in late April. Thanks again to David and his family. Thanks to you for being a loyal listener. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.